Years ago, I heard one of my mentors use a phrase that I found compelling. He said, Jesus is what God has to say. It was powerful and it stuck with me. Over the years, I've been mulling over this phrase and thinking about how it intersects with one of the debates that's being had within Christianity about the phrase, the word of God. Some people insist the Bible is the word of God. Still others insist, no, Jesus is the word of God. Where does the truth lie? That's the question that we're going to dive into today. On this episode, I'm joined by that same mentor that I learned the phrase, Jesus is what God has to say from, my former youth pastor and good friend, Evan Wickham. I know that you're going to be blessed to hear from Evan today. If you don't know him, he's a worship leader, a husband and a father of five kids, a graduate of Western Seminary, and a church planting pastor who leads Park Hill Church in San Diego, a fantastic church. If you're in that area, check it out. You won't be sorry. I can't speak more highly of the guy. He's been one of the people in my life who has challenged me and inspired me to follow Jesus the most. He's always encouraged me to dive deep, not shy away from tough questions, and he's always pointed me back to Jesus. In fact, if it wasn't for the ways that he's impacted me over the years, this show and ministry of Good Lion honestly probably wouldn't exist. So we here at Good Lion are very thankful for Evan. With all that said, I know you're going to enjoy today's episode as we explore the concept of the Word of God and ask who or what is the Word of God. We get deep, we get biblical, I know that I learned a lot, and I hope you do too. I hope this conversation between a teacher and his former student blesses you, encourages you, challenges you, and even surprises you. You're listening to The Good Lion Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Good Lion Podcast. This is Aaron Salvato and I'm joined with my good friend, Evan Wickham. How's it going, man? Hey Aaron, really good. <laughs> it's good to have you on the show, man, again. It's great to be talking to you. We've been talking a little bit before we hit record and it's just been great to catch up. I'm really excited you're here today because the topic that we're going to be discussing is one that is very near and dear to my heart. Yeah, yeah. First of all, thanks so much for having me back. Last one was really fun. We had a long meandering conversation about, I think it's kind of related actually, how people mm. want to, you know, kind of question the things we've been handed. I think I think the theme was deconstruction. I think yeah. one of the things we want to deconstruct is how we view the Bible and mm. what the Bible mm. is. And so, you know, as followers of Jesus, it's a really important conversation. Yes. But thank you. <laughs> I love I love what you're doing. You're really good at what you do, man. Thanks, man. It's It's... It's a really important conversation. It's it's great to have you here to talk about it. The concept that we're going to go over is actually one that I learned indirectly from you. I picked up from you and mm. it's blessed me for years. And yeah, I do agree. This is a very important conversation and there's a lot of confusion around it. And here at the show, we love to dive into those nuances. And so, yeah, it's good to have you back. You, I mean... You've been on the show several times, but it, it's only once officially. And then the other times are like, I'm taking a clip of you teaching and putting it into an episode because it reinforces <laughs> something we're talking about. So it's oh, good to have you awesome. here officially. So why don't we jump right in? There is a phrase that I learned from you indirectly, you know, heard you say it in sermons. You've mentioned it on social media. It's one that stuck with me. And it's the idea of 
Jesus is what God has to say. And it's connected to the idea of in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus as the Logos, as the Word of God. And so that's a phrase that I've embraced. I love it. Others, I brought it up. There's some pushback. There's some confusion around it. And so I want to get into all that with you. But to start out, I'd love to just have you clearly define what does that phrase mean to you? What 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 does Jesus is what God has to say? What does it mean to you? Yeah, Aaron, that's great. I I heard that that phrase. It to me it made a whole lot of sense of the whole New Testament really and everything the Old Testament was longing for and that was for God to finally speak through his son. And mm. Hebrews 1 is probably the go-to place for, you know, New Testament grounding for this idea that Jesus is what God has to say and you know, I have my Logos Bible open here. And yeah, in the Hebrews 1, in, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Mm. And, you know, another way of saying that is Jesus is what God has to say. He's He's the final word, capital W. Yeah, even that, even that word Logos means word. And that's the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the... The, the capital W word, and I, and I get the, I get the pushback. We, you know, a part of part of the fear, and and I resonate with this concern. It makes me nervous. Is when people say things like, "Hey, Jesus is the Word of God." When people say that, often often what's implied there is that the Bible isn't <laughs> like Jesus is the Word of God, not the Bible. That's I've actually heard that in more progressive circles, almost try, trying to separate Jesus, you know, from from biblical authority and. I think that is uh, you know, not just dangerous, but heretical and um, mm-hmm. not remotely what Jesus would be interested in us doing. But yeah, so, so to me, Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the center of the gospel. It, it is a very Jesus-centered way of approaching uh, all of the world, all of life, all of the Christian faith and the scriptures too. And I remember you said, you know, when we were getting ready for this podcast the other day, you pointed to John 5, 39, where, where Jesus looks at the religious Bible people. <laughs> he looks at the Pharisees and he's, and he's like, you guys, you search the scriptures thinking in them you have eternal life, but you've missed me. The scriptures mm. Mm. point to me. They reveal me as the living word. And so just a Right up front, a a clear distinction for me in my brain that helps me kind of see the two, the Bible as the Word of God and Jesus as the Word of God. Jesus is the capital W word. (laughs) The Bible is the little W word. Mm. They're both the word. Mm. We could talk more about that, but that's kind of a summary. That's great. That's a great summary. I feel like I was going to ask you first, what does it mean to you? And then I was going to follow up with what doesn't it mean? And I think you started to hit both of those things really well. On this show, a lot of times we we talk about things at length because I think repetition is good. It helps concepts sink in because often you can hear a concept in a one-liner, but it doesn't actually fully sink into your brain until it's been discussed, until you understand it. So that's what we want to do. We just want to talk about this concept. You know, for, for me, 
what that phrase has meant to me over the years, you know, as somebody, as a young youth pastor, heard that phrase from you, adopted it, started to wrestle through, pray through, what does this mean? And the place where I got with it was this understanding of, okay, we have the Bible. The Bible is super important, but what what is the purpose of the Bible? The purpose of the scriptures are, it's a unified story that leads to Jesus. The point of everything is Jesus. It, it sums up, it, it fulfills itself in Jesus. And so for me, when I look at the phrase, you know, what Jesus is, what God has to say, I think of it almost like if, if someone came to me and said, what is, what, is, what is God's message for me? Like, what is God trying to say to me? And if you just open up to some random passage in the Old Testament or even the New Testament and there's no context, there can be so many messages that someone could walk away with and go, oh, so God means this, God means that. But if you look at it in the context, Jesus is what God has to say to people and that he uses the scriptures to say it. Jesus reveals God's heart. Jesus reveals God's mission, his mindset. And I'd argue his primary method of accomplishing his goals, which is grace and forgiveness and, and restorative justice. Like, yes, he's a God of justice. Yes, he punishes sinners. But Jesus reveals to us that he has this agenda of trying to restore broken people and the broken world. Mm. So mm. that's that's what it's meant to me over the years. It's beautiful. Thanks, man. <laughs> I love it. It was well said. We threw out something in in the beginning about the Logos, about in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. You've been to seminary. I haven't. (laughs) I did one semester of Bible college in York, England. Loved it. Met my wife. It was a really great experience. Awesome. I I wish I would have paid more attention. I wish I would have taken better notes. I've tried to make up for it by just being a lifelong learner and reading. But for you, as a seminarian, can you break down for us the Logos? What does that mean? Like, Mm. I know it's a... It's a basic question, but I think there might be people listening. There might be some people listening where they're not as familiar with that as they could be. So how does that connect to Jesus being the word, Jesus being what God has to say? How does that connect to John 1? Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm, you know, no, no Greek specialist. And, I, you know, in seminary, my MDiv is just, just, you learn just enough Greek over one year to be very detrimental with the Greek language. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't, you don't, you don't know enough to say that you know the language mm. or Hebrew or whatever. And, you know, I'm not an expert in, you know, anything, but I, but I do, I love, I love the gospel of John and I'm thankful for all the interpreters that have given us English translations. And I just love, you know, in the beginning was the word and John one is clearly mirroring Genesis one. Mm. And, and I, I love how, if you've seen The Chosen, I don't know if you've seen that TV show. So good. I think it was the first or second episode of season two where John is writing mm. his gospel mm. and he flashes back to, to Jesus teaching in a synagogue and Jesus asks John, what should I preach on? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, a.k.a. the Logos, the Word, second mm. person, the, son, the preexistent Son, that's what that means, the preexistent eternal Son, he asks John, the Son of Thunder, what should I preach on? And, and he's like, I've always liked Genesis 1. He's like, that's it. That's what, that's what I'll preach on. In the beginning, God created the heavens mm-hmm. and the earth, and the earth was without form. And mm-hmm. he begins to unpack Genesis 1, and John's flashing back, just like weeping, because he's realizing that's where I'm going to begin my gospel too. 
in the beginning mm. was God created? No, no, Logos was with the God who created and mm. was God. And everything was made through this Logos, the second person mm. of the Trinity, this pre-existent son. You could just see John weeping over this mm. revelation. Jesus he, is he knows that Jesus. word. Right. He knows Jesus, deeply knows Jesus. He was the one who leaned back on Jesus's chest and felt Jesus's own pulse rate mm. at the he's, communion so he, table. He's like zooming out and he's seeing the magnitude of it. Like this person who's mm-hmm. been his friend for years and now it's like he was there at the beginning. Like he created all of this. Yes. He set all this into motion. Yes, and mm-hmm. it's powerful. And 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 it's interesting that John pulls from Greek philosophy a word that was very common in the secular world at that time, and that was logos. And and I again I'm not a ancient Greek specialist at all, but I do know that that word existed in pagan circles mm. uh, to 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 describe what is the thing behind the thing. Mm. What is what is ultimate reality? Mm. Because everything we know is because of that reality. What is that? Mm. And and they called it this this logos, this this knowing, this word. Mm. And John pulled that. He said, "Oh, I know who that knowing is. I know who that word is." He said so himself when he unpacked mm. creation for us. Mm. And so to say Jesus is the word of God is to take Genesis one and John one, superimpose them on each other, and center them on the baby who was born to Mary. And there's no better time to think on that than now. This is We're recording this the week of Christmas. Mm. And mm. one of my favorite books I read in seminary was a 1,700-year-old pamphlet <laughs> called On the Incarnation mm. by St. Athanasius, a hero of the faith. Mm. It's called On the Incarnation. <laughs> and throughout this little book, it's like 60 pages or something, the main term Athanasius uses to describe the Jesus event. The main term is the word, the logos. Mm. He, he prefers that term even over Christ. Obviously, he, Jesus is the Christ, but but he he's referring to this event where God spoke mm. through through not just a text, but through flesh, bone, life, death, resurrection, the Jesus event. It's mm. this word. And Athanasius is channeling the author of Hebrews. He's like, oh my gosh, so many prophets, so many poets, so much text that's come to us from God. 100% the Bible's the word of God. But in these last days, God has finally, fully spoken through his own, his own son. Mm. And and Jesus is what God has to say. Mm. So to, to me, that's, that's kind of how I put the pieces together. love the acknowledgement of the relationship between Jesus and the Bible. One of the things that I've heard when I've studied the Logos is the word Logos, one meaning you can get from it is sort of not just a word like the or God, but it's, it's a message. It's a statement. So it's like in the beginning was God's message. In the beginning was what God was trying to communicate to us. And that's Jesus. But when I was younger, you know, just just by the nature of the environment I grew up in, I would hear all the time people refer to the Bible as God's word, which I don't think is a bad thing. But, you know, I'd be like, bro, what have you read in the word this morning? You know, it was always kind of the the word. So as a young man, the Bible, the Bible doesn't really refer to itself that way. 
That's true. Right. Yeah. So when when I would read John one as a young man, um, as a very you know young man child, I I would you know in the beginning was the word. I imagined this Bible floating through the cosmos. You know, just flapping its pages, its onion skin pages like wings. And um, mm-hmm. and and so you know the, and, and and I think to some extent there I want I want to go in a direction with this because. Before we get into fleshing out what we mean by the Bible being God's word and Jesus, but them meaning different things, can you maybe speak into sort of the stereotype? Like you've traveled all over. You've been to so many different churches as a worship leader. You've, you've been around so many different kinds of Christians. There's a stereotype with some Christians where they view the Bible almost as the fourth member of the Trinity. You know, there's that expression of Father, Son, Holy Bible instead of, you know, Holy Spirit. Right. Have you seen that? Like, is that a caricature or, or have you seen that in, in some ways? How have you seen that play out in a negative way? If you have. No. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's mostly, it's not a caricature in some places. We, at the beginning, I mentioned, you know, kind of a progressive way of separating Jesus and the Bible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where it's Jesus versus the Bible. They try to pit yeah. Jesus against the text. I think the same separation happens on the conservative end with Bibli- mm. what I call bibliolatry. I've heard that before. I didn't make it mm. up. Mm. But bibliolatry is what you just described where your mental image of the Bible is false. It's this golden tablets thing that descended from the sky and it is fourth member of the Trinity, often third taking priority before the Holy Spirit <laughs> in practice. Mm. Mm. And 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 that's that's equally incorrect. The Bible is not golden tablets that fell from the sky. The Bible is a thoroughly human book mm. and uniquely divine collection of scriptures. Mm. It's both divine scripture and a thoroughly human book mm. that infallibly inerrantly points to Jesus as the center of the gospel and the prime reality behind the universe as creator. Mm. And so the danger comes when I I think we have this uh, dictation theory model of the Bible where we think the Bible is, you know, golden tablets that came through meat puppet humans that just dictated <laughs> something beyond their brains. That's how you I know? always thought it was. Um, like they, they were filled, possessed by the Holy Ghost and then their hands just start, you know, <laughs> writing. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that's the danger in that is when you when you then go to read and apply the scripture, you can overemphasize, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Hmm. And and you, you miss one important piece and it's I interpret it. Hmm. God, yes, God says it 100 percent. But you have to interpret it, especially if you don't speak ancient Greek or Hebrew. There's been an interpretation along the way somewhere. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and we trust that those interpretations are, are fully valid and we have ways of verifying that 100%. But eventually you have to like decide how to work out a letter to, you know, a first century Greco-Roman pagan city like Corinth and wonder, should my wife be praying with her head covered? <laughs> right. At church, because right. Paul commands it, and right. if we're honest with our reading, it's it's a command. So, like, right? Yeah, if if we if we ignore the I interpret it part, we can get into heaps of trouble. Yeah. So, so I have this book here. I, I know you can see me, but the listeners cannot. But this is <laughs> un- Unbreakable. It's a book called Unbreakable by hmm. by Andrew Wilson. And again, it's very short. I'm I'm recommending pamphlets only today. <laughs> Great. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, unbreakable. And the subtitle is, you'll love this, what the son of God has to say about the word of God. Mm, yes. 
I love it. I do. Yes. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> yes. And uh, and it's exactly what we're talking about. Did Jesus view the scriptures as God's word? Mm. The answer is an emphatic yes. 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 Emphatic yes. And, and for him to say that competes with his status as the word of God, he would laugh at that. Mm. He would laugh at that. And and so how, how do we how do we begin understanding this? And, and and Andrew goes to Jesus, and I love this. I'm going to read this. It's amazing. He says, basically, where do we start? He says, this book will use Jesus as the starting point for hmm. coming to the Bible. And he says, that's controversial. I know. Some people want to start with the Bible to get to Jesus. But he's like, no, this book's going to start with Jesus to get to the Bible. And he's like, that's controversial. Ultimately, you see, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, Mm. the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. Mm. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if Jesus acts and talks as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, then I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Mm. Mm. I love that. And that, that's that's the model we, we use in our community. I think that's the historic model of understanding the Bible. We follow it because Jesus tells us to. Maybe what I can do right now is I can kind of play the audience because this is a teacher talking to a student right now. You were my youth pastor. I've been somebody who considers myself someone who's been learning from you over the years. So I can maybe tell you how I've absorbed this information and where I've gone with it. And, and maybe you can tell me, you know, if, if that is the right way to think about it. So the place where I'm at with all of this, because I've been re- wrestling through this topic for quite some time now, and I will probably continue to wrestle with it. The place where I am at with it is basically, I understand the Bible to be divine. And what I mean by that is the Bible is the way that God decided to communicate his message to humans. The message is about Jesus. The method of communication was scripture. It was not just, you know, oral tradition passed down to become a telephone game, but it was actually things written down to us. The way the Bible is a human book, because I see some progressives try to go, oh yeah, the Bible's just a human book. And what they mean by that is it has no authority. Like it is just mm-hmm. a bunch of opinions and thoughts and poems mm. and, and and histories, but it really doesn't have any authority over your life is what my more progressive friends would say and what they have said to me. I reject that notion. I do believe the Bible to be a human book in the sense of just as God has done throughout his entire plan, he has partnered with flawed humans to produce things. Like he did not have to do what he did through Adam and Eve. He did not have to pick Noah. He did not have to work with Abraham. The scriptures themselves show us that God's preferred method to do things is to work through flawed humans. And it's not always a perfect result, but it's it's him yeah. working in and through. So with the scriptures, you know, the way I view it is whatever I'm reading in this book, this is a part of what God is trying to communicate. It is what he wanted to be here it was divinely inspired. He didn't possess anybody and and they didn't go into a trance and start writing, but he like 
through this insane work of, of divine, I don't know if the word's providence, but just his divine will, he worked through humans to produce this book that leads us to Jesus. So it's like when, when I'm reading, for instance, Peter makes a comment in his letter to one of the churches where it's like, yeah, Paul's kind of hard to understand. I've moved from a place <laughs> of like God divinely possessed Peter to say that about Paul <laughs> and more of like, that was a little bit of Peter's humanity slipping through, you know, that's where all we get of it. Yeah. The, the human yeah. side. Right. Yeah. I think, I, I think we all, that, that's an important piece. The, the humanity is always gushing through hmm. on every page. Hmm. It's not that God holds back any author's humanity at any point hmm. that that's, that, that's part of kind of getting rid of the old paradigm. It's not that God let Peter's humanity slip through in that one moment. And the rest was like divine humanity's gushing through on every page hmm. error and polygamy and and i don't mean error in the text i mean right. error in the human sense in the thank, story and th- the events behind the text that. yeah and, and i was already uh, expecting a listener to be like what did he just say <laughs> so that's that's a good yeah, clarification and, and even and even error so what 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 modern minds might call errors are not concerns for the humans that wrote it like mm. we have we have mismatched measurements in mm. the kings and chronicles bronze lavers like manufactured pools of water that mm. in one place it says it's this wide and in another place it says it's that wide uh, perfect circle versus non-perfect circle in an oval. It's like, well, which is it? Oh my gosh! Right. There's an error. Therefore, God's not writing the Bible. No. Yeah, for, for some, for some people who've been given, I hold to, I hold to a principle of inerrancy. But for some people, they take inerrancy so far that if, if they discover that any of those measurements might be off in some way, it throws off their entire faith. And for me, reading Joshua Ryan Butler's book skeletons in God's closet. There was something he said in there that really helped me where he was talking about, you know, the Bible says they, you know, battle Joshua fought somebody. They killed, let's say 2000 people is what the text said. If the number of people that were actually slain was like 1,956 is my entire faith thrown off. Now, if I went back in time and discovered that like, Oh, the Bible is wrong. It's like, no, it's a, there's a literary method here. There was humans involved. They're using a, a generalization you know, that's how right. they talked about battles. When when a battle was won, they'd look at the number of people that died and they'd kind of round it up to a certain number. So yep. it, it's just understanding those kind of things that can help. Oh, big time. That's very, very important. And it's not a concept I had in my early years as a Christian. It's that you know, the Bible's thoroughly human. It's hmm. thoroughly human. Hmm. <laughs> it's not that God possessed meat puppets to write special words that were beyond their understanding. God has meaning. Absolutely. He's, he's put meaning. He has meaning for us to grab from scripture that are absolutely beyond the author's understanding. Hmm. Otherwise, you know, how, how would we be able to apply First Corinthians to San Diego? You hmm. know, the author was not thinking of San San Diego. <laughs> Paul was not thinking of Costa Mesa or London when he wrote, Jews and Gentiles better stop fighting over circumcision in Galatia. Mm. But the Holy Spirit was. Mm. And, and so, and so we, we trust the Holy Spirit's process of not, not, not controlling, not possessing. The biblical word is God breathing his scriptures mm. through fully human persons. Mm. It's a pneumatic Holy Spirit breath mm. that filled the sails in a unique way when the humans who wrote the Bible wrote the Bible. And it's unique. 
Yeah. You know, I, I've heard on the progressive end, I've, I've talked with a friend who runs a podcast that's, you know, pretty popular on the, the liberal in, in liberal circles. And, and, and he said this, he's like, I don't believe that God was involved in the writing of the Bible in any meaningful way. Wow. And, and I'm like, um, <laughs> I, I need, I need you to clarify because before I, before I mention this to anyone else, <laughs> I want to represent you right. right. Are you saying what you said? Do you really think you said it? Or did you just like, you know how you run a podcast, you say something you didn't mean? Yes. All the time. Um, <laughs> he's like, no, no, no. Yeah. No, he's like, I, I don't believe that God was involved in the writing of scripture in any meaningful way, he said. I'm wow. like, how do you say that mm. as and stand in the line of church history or at all? He's like, well, I do stand in the line of church history. I just believe that the Bible's inspired the same way a song I wrote about my wife is inspired by my wife. <laughs> And, yeah. uh, and I, and I, I actually, I get that. That's what the word inspired means in the English language. Mm-hmm. The Bible's inspired by God. It's all these great songs inspired by God written by people or right. whatever. But, but <laughs> that's not the word in Greek, right. you know, that's totally the English word inspired, but the word in Greek is God breathed it. God breathed it. Right. The difference between his view and your view is in his view, God did a bunch of stuff and there were people standing by who saw it and said, that's inspiring. And they wrote it down versus God did stuff and then came to people and said, I want you to write this down. And I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit and guide you as you write it, because this is really important. It's the, something that I want to say. Correct. And, and, and in guiding you as you write it, I'm not going to bypass everything human about you. I'm right. not going to make you a meat puppet. Right. Which is amazing. It's like a paradox. Actually, it's just like Jesus, who's both fully God and fully man. Yeah, it's it's such a hard, It's I think it's the right position to hold, but it's hard because it introduces tension and it introduces uncertainty with certain things, which is hard because if you come from a more fundamentalist background, it's all about certainty and it's all about my tribe understands these texts perfectly and everybody else is off. I think that the way that you're trying to hold the scriptures though is a more faithful way in my mind even though it's harder and it's more prone to people misunderstanding you i think it's it's more faithful So Evan, I, I want to jump into pushback that people give to this concept. And I don't want to caricaturize anybody giving pushback as like, oh, this is just some unintellectual person. These are valid pushbacks and valid right. fears that people have. Yeah. That's one of the things we want to do on this show is we want to recognize, we don't want to just sit here and say, hey, we, we've got it all figured out. We know it. We want to recognize that in the Christian family, there have been debates about these things for years. And a lot of it is coming from a valid place of wanting to remain as faithful to scripture as possible. So the first pushback, and I think the most common one, this is actually one that my friend, when I was discussing this concept with him, he threw out at me. He said, okay, if Jesus is what God has to say, what if it leads to people focusing so much on Jesus that they lose reverence for the rest of scripture? I would just say that's a false dichotomy. I totally get the fear and the nervousness there, but it, the more you focus on Jesus, the more you listen to what Jesus has to say, the more you hear him saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. Mm. 
Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, which was his word for Bible. The law and mm. the prophets was his Bible, a.k.a. our Old Testament. And the more you read Jesus, the more he was absolutely obsessed with hearing his father's voice through scripture. And so if you say, <laughs> you know, the more you focus on Jesus, you might lose reverence for the Bible. Then it might not be the Jesus seated at the right hand of the father that you're focusing on. It might be some other Jesus in your mind. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what that's I, would, I would say to that. I think that's Jesus good. Jesus and the word, so Jesus and the Bible are not in a competitive relationship. They're just <laughs> yes. not. Yeah, right. They're, they're, in a, they're in a symbiotic relationship. They feed into one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's how I'd respond to that. That's good. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good answer because in my mind, the whole idea of reverence for the Bible, you just hit the nail on the head. Jesus himself has reverence for the Old Testament scriptures. Like that's another concept that I'm glad that you taught me because you taught me Jesus is what God has to say. And then right after you threw out the Hebrew Bible, that's Jesus's Bible. That is, that's what he's quoting. That's what he's referring to. That's where he's drawing his theology from. But the, the difference is that he is the fulfillment of that theology. You know, this whole thing about putting Jesus versus the Bible, it was interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine. He's a seminary guy as well. And he was pushing back on the idea of a, a, a Christocentric lens to scripture. And I would have to really sit down with him and find out exactly what he means by his pushback because we barely got into it. But one thing that I kind of threw out, because he was talking about, I brought up the idea of, okay, when we read the Old Testament, we need to read it through the lens of Christ. And he sort of disagreed with that. The thing that came up from my side of the argument was I was talking about, okay, we've got Star Wars, right? And Star Wars, when it first came out, we got episodes four, five, and six, right? A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. You can watch those in a vacuum. I love where this is going right now. <laughs> you can watch those in a vacuum, and there's things that you don't know about Anakin Skywalker. You don't know his backstory. You don't know any of that stuff. Eventually, you're going to watch the prequels, episodes one, two, and three, and it's going to reveal new context. As I was talking with my friend, it seemed like he was implying the right way to watch Star Wars under this paradigm would be when you watch episodes four, five, and six, you should not be thinking of anything that happened in the prequels because it's meant to exist just on its own. And I would argue that once you understand Jesus, like if you're reading the Old Testament and you don't know anything about Jesus and you don't, you don't have the New Testament, things are going to seem a certain way. When you get the context of Jesus and you go back and reread the Old Testament, you should be applying that context of who Jesus is, what God's mission was, what his... It should, it should completely right. open up this new way of understanding. It doesn't do away the Old Testament, but does, is anything that I'm saying making sense? 100%. Yeah. So I'm going to come at it from kind of a story in my past that it was a moment of revelation for me. At the time, at the time I was not ready for what I was reading. It was in my early Bible college years. I went to uh, Trinity College of the Bible in Newburgh, Indiana online. It was, it was a great, a great school. One of the books that, <laughs> that my Old Testament professor had me read was a book by Christopher Wright called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've read that, no, but I'll have to. One of the one of the premises of this book, and I didn't have a paradigm for this. I was not ready. One of the premises was Jesus was so saturated in the Old Testament. Mm. Jesus actually relied on the Old Testament scriptures to come to his own realization of his identity as Messiah. 
I've heard that before, and that's a really challenging concept for me. Like what I would like to believe, yeah. and because the way it's always kind of been taught, I don't know if anyone's ever even said it, but the, it's it's always kind of like, you know, Jesus always knew who he was. You know, like like not as a baby, but when you get to the point where he's yeah. lost in the city, and they find him at the temple, and he's talking to the priests and and the temple workers about his father's work. It's like, yeah, at that point he knew. And, and, and yeah, there's that verse 100%. that Jesus, I would agree with that. Okay. Okay. I would agree that he knew at that point, but what was he debating? What was he, what was he talking about with the teachers of the law and the prophets? He was talking about the law and the prophets. Hmm. He was talking about the Hebrew scriptures that shaped their entire culture. You know, that, that the Hebrew scriptures were not just uh, some religious book they read at church. You yeah. know, they didn't, they had synagogue. It, the Hebrew scriptures were more than this. They shaped the entire language and culture. It was the primer to read. It was everything they knew about their identity as people. And so Jesus was most likely extremely fluent in Old Testament <laughs> by the time he was 12, just like most just like most other boys at the time. I just want to frame the question because the, the question that comes yes. up in my mind based on that book is two scenarios, which is which is right. Scenario one is Jesus as the second member of the Trinity before he became human. He knows all. He possesses all wisdom. He knows everything. So everything that's been written in the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. it's already downloaded into his brain. Like he knows that stuff, becomes a human, and all of that knowledge just is with him. It's already the, it's been downloaded to the matrix. It's uploaded. He's got it and he's ready to go. The other view would be by becoming human, Jesus actually put him in a position, he put himself in a position where he had, he had to relearn everything. And the way that he relearned everything was through the scriptures and through the Holy Spirit. Like he, he became so human that he subjected himself to limited knowledge. So yeah, what do you think? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think the New Testament is clear on that. Jesus learned. Mm. Luke 2.52 says he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and in favor with men. And Hebrews says he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned character formation, according to Hebrews. He learned wisdom, according to Luke. Mm. And Luke knew what he was talking about. He's a very learned doctor. Mm. To say that Jesus was always omniscient is just, I would say it borders on heresy. Um, Mm. The, the the heresy of docetism was cast down in the early church. And that was basically Jesus was not fully human in every way, like Hebrews says he was. Instead, mm. he was Superman. Clark Kent had the big S on his chest under his under his suit, and he could pull back the suit any time. He didn't really experience pain. He didn't really experience unknowing. Mm. He didn't really experience grief because he knew the end completely from the beginning because that's what Yahweh does. That's actually, that's actually functional heresy. <laughs> It was voted down by the early church. Jesus was human in every way. How do you explain temptation when you right. know everything in in every way? <laughs> temptation by its own by its very definition is is experiencing yeah. a limit. Man, it's it's always it's always fun when you when you learn that you may have been carrying around functional heresy a little bit in your toolkit. That's uh Oh, that's a great, great time. Super you're blow, good time. You're blowing up my paradigms, so that's good, man. I appreciate and, it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Philippians 2, Philippians 2 is probably the clearest doctrinal declaration of mm. this very fact, and that's be like Jesus, be mm. humble like Jesus, who considered it, he, he didn't consider it robbery to claim equality with God, because he was God, fully mm. God, never lost his godness, never mm. lost his, his divinity in any sense. Mm. And yet, in, in Dr. Bashir's words, who we both love, Jesus laid aside the use of his God card mm. 
And, and by that, Gary means what all the creeds mean is that Jesus laid aside the use of his incommunicable attributes, mm. his omniscience, his omnipresence, his, uh, what's the other omni? Omniscience, omni- omnipotence. Yeah. Omnipotent creatures do not die. Mm. <laughs> Jesus died. Omniscient creatures do not learn. Jesus learned. Omnipresent creatures can't say, I'm not going to be where you are. Jesus said, I'm not going to be where you are. Hmm. And, and so all, all this points to this reality that Jesus learned hmm. and submitted hmm. to his father's authority through the scriptures and was therefore perfectly spirit filled to live sinlessly and right. perform miracles and be raised from the dead. Because he says, I can do nothing apart from my father. Nothing. Hmm. Nothing. And so the, the point of Chris Wright's premise is, is, is beautiful. It actually raises, raises the authority of the Old yeah. Testament. Yeah. It gives a higher view. If Jesus depended on the Spirit and the Scriptures, how much more must we? Mm. If Jesus dispen- <laughs> d- depended so on the, prof- the prophetic text of the Old Testament to see the identity of himself as Messiah, how much more do we depend on the Old Testament to fully know Jesus? This yeah. is the call to no, submit yeah. to the scriptures. No, it's, this is exciting. It's exciting to me. I, I, I just always love it when a new layer of the onion is kind of peeled back for me. And this is really good. I hope, I hope for you guys listening, even whether you agree or not, I hope it's an in, important conversation for you to hear. But for, for me, the reason why it's exciting is because it's showing, it's revealing that in in order for Jesus to discover who he truly is and to fully live out who he truly was, he needed both the scripture and the Holy Spirit. Those were the tools that God used 100%. in his life to help yeah. him become who he was meant to be. And so for us, like, why would it be any different? And then it, to me, it just gets me even more excited about the power of the scripture and the Holy Spirit working together in my life to help me become who God has truly meant me to be. So it's exciting. So good. So here's another objection that I hear from people pushing back against the idea of us saying Jesus is what God has to say. And hopefully for you listening, just this conversation has helped you understand what we mean and what we don't mean as we've talked about it at length here. One objection that comes up is progressive Christians tend to focus on Jesus's kindness, inclusiveness, love, compassion, empathy, which I'm not saying those are bad things. Those are great things that I love about Jesus. Those are some of my favorite things about Jesus. But progressive Christians tend to focus on these things. Does this give them then a license to throw out, does saying Jesus is what God has to say give them a license to throw out the Old Testament and any passages they deem problematic on things like judgment or sexuality or particular sins that they might not agree as are sins? Does it give them license to just throw those things out and say, I don't need that stuff. I just need Jesus. 
first of all, I just want to say the whole like, you know, liberal conservative or progressive fundamentalist, those those kinds of framings, I used to think they're really helpful and they set up, you know, they set up the conversation smart and stuff. And sometimes they do. But often I found that they box in the conversation and they make they immediately they immediately end listening. Because I, I want to listen. Like it, it can it can paint people with too broad of a brush. Yeah, yeah. It, it's yes, yes. And 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 I just want to say to my more progressive brothers and sisters, like I resonate hundred percent. I think mm. the mm. church has missed the boat on communicating compassion to the people that are far from God. Yes. In our in our lives, mm. and and to my conservative brothers and sisters, I'm like I'm one of you, like a hundred percent. And I and I. And I'm so grateful for the constant challenge to return to orthodoxy and re- return mm. to that which mm. has been revealed through 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 the Christian tradition for millennia. And I just think I, I think the answer is beyond the spectrum. The answer is beyond you know framing it as progressive conservative. It's mm. it's not it's not about being liberal or fundamentalist. It's about being faithful. Mm. And so yeah, I you know it's good. Your question is valid. I th- I think I think both conservatives and progressives and moderates <laughs> and other can take Jesus and make him our poster child. Yeah, I would agree. And and listeners of the show know that we agree. <laughs> yeah, like like just to use some extreme examples, you know, we've all seen pictures from last January of Jesus saves next to Capitol riots. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen pictures of, you know, you know, whether it's pro-abortion rallies saying mm, Jesus yeah. supports woman's choice. Yeah. We've seen Jesus be used by everybody. Yeah. Everybody likes Jesus. Yeah. We even talk about the historical Jesus, like mm. the quest for the historical Jesus. And you go to the grocery store and you see Time Magazine, who really was Jesus? Mm. And, you know, eventually we have to move beyond all the binary debates and we have to say, where's the source of authority on who Jesus is? It's the eyewitnesses, Matthew, mm. Mark, Luke, John. Mm. I'm not interested in the historical Jesus. And I'm going to I'm, I can go on record and say that I am not interested in the historical Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not interested mm. in what he really said or, or quote, well, that's with air quotes in what he really said mm. or finding the, you know, the first mosaic of Jesus that indicates his whatever. I, I'm interested in the Jesus of Matthew and the Jesus of Mark and the Jesus of Luke and the Jesus of John. Mm. This is the only Jesus we have. And by the Spirit, we can know him just like John knew him in intimacy mm. through the text, through the Word of God. We can know him. It's a, it's a matter of trust. You're trusting that the way that God wanted to reveal Jesus to us is what was written down in the text. You're, you're trusting that that is for the most part, what was actually said. I mean, maybe there was a word that was different here or there or something, or one sentence came before the other or whatever, but you're, you're trusting that that is the representation that God has given us of who Jesus is and therefore who he is. Oh yeah. I mean, I know for, we, we all know for a fact that there were plenty of other words said John, right. The gospel of John specifically says that, um, there are more things that he did. If if we don't have a library big enough, he said, yeah. Hmm. Um, and even the Sermon on the Mount, to, to think that that was just one sermon one time hmm. is to miss the point. Hmm. I remember when I was sitting with Gary and he's like, this is Matthew patchworking the wisdom of Jesus for communities of Jesus that are trying to take the Old Testament and apply it to the Jesus event. And the Sermon hmm. on the Mount, maybe it, it could have been one sermon. It was probably not. A it collection was probably of greatest hits. the teachings of Jesus. Hmm. 
Yeah, the co- a collection of greatest hits that Matthew had a theological agenda behind. Mm. So Matthew and Mark and Luke and John each have their own theological agendas. And that is from the Spirit too. Right. And their theological agendas give us the Jesus that the Father, Son, and Spirit want us to receive. Right. That's good, man. So, I mean, yeah, that's there's good. so much there. Um, yeah. But No, that's, that's really good. I, I think that at the core of the conservative versus liberal thing, it all comes down to whether you're conservative or liberal is either accepting God at his own words or trying to use his words to allow you to be able to accept whatever belief you've given yourself. And, and that's a big problem. I remember I was talking to a guy, friend of mine, more conservative, and he was trying to argue that, you know, because Jesus said to his disciples, go and buy a sword, the Bible was saying that, you know, every Christian needs to go and and buy a gun. And I was like, I don't have a problem with guns personally. Like I go shooting with my wife's dad. Sometimes we shoot, you know, cans in the backyard, but that is not what, that is not what the original authors and intent of the scripture was trying to communicate in that moment. You are, (laughs) and yeah, I spent some time trying to, you know, debate with him of why, you know, I don't think that that's what that verse means. I think, you know, Jesus said, go buy a sword to fulfill the prophecy that he would be among the transgressors. That's a whole I've been wanting to do an episode on that for years, but, and the point was you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're not accepting the the Bible at, you're not taking it at face value. You're trying to use it as a grab bag to just apply to whatever you want to say in your life. And by the same token, here's an extreme example, but I, I found this just the other day on a very progressive account, you know, deconstructionist, ex-evangelical account, very, very anti-church and Christian, but they, they posted this and it just blew my mind. They said, uh, I have no use for a literal virgin birth. I want to marry who stayed up late having passionate sex. I want to marry whose lover read her feminist erotic poems. This Mary leads us to a theology of erotic embodiment and a theology of liberation. And to me, it's like, we can talk about liberation. We can talk about embodiment, but that's not what the scripture is trying to say through the story of Mary. Like (laughs) either reject the Bible outright and just leave it behind or like, but don't, don't just keep it and decide that it just applies to whatever you want it to apply in your life. That's what I see people doing on both sides of the, the aisle It's just the Bible just serves whatever agenda they have. And to me, that's, I think where we get it twisted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, um, whoever that was, that, that reading of, of Mary is, is almost not worth responding to, but <laughs> your overarching point is, mm-hmm. is true. You know, we, all of us are tempted and it's not just progressives. Again, it's, it's moderates, it's conservatives. I think when we try to pit ourselves against those wrong people over there, right. I think we fall in, we're tempted to fall into the same, same trap. But what, what, what I'm tempted to do, what I want to do, you know, is find, find a story of, of Jesus being nice in the gospels and then find a story of someone being oppressed mm. in the gospels, put them together, form a lens mm. and then read the whole Bible through that new lens. And I suddenly have a Jesus of my own making. Yeah. Mm. You, you alluded, you alluded to the Jesus of the sword or the Jesus of the gun. Um, I know you don't want to talk about pacifism, nonviolence and using Jesus to endorse violence, but I would love um, to on another it, episode. It happens all the time. <laughs> 
Like I, I let's do a whole yeah, episode on yeah, that. Yeah, I think that I think that's a, that's a similar that's similar to the woman who wants a Mary who's having passionate sex and reading feminist erotic literature. It's it's not the author's intent. It right. is a story of your own making mm. that you've read. Some readings are more some false readings are more sensible than others to us. Mm. And I can see, you know, why it would be sensible to read self-defense, mm-hmm. violence as self-defense out of out of the Jesus pick up a sword story. I can right. see that. I oh, totally yeah. get that. Oh yeah. If it was if it wasn't for if it wasn't for the context. Yes. And the context, as you mentioned, tells us what Jesus was doing. So Evan, a place that I want to go in the conversation is I want to talk about when we have people, when we have Christians, and they sort of do this thing where they look at the Old Testament and things that are said in the Old Testament as if this, whatever is said, anything that is said in the Old Testament is definitively truth, instruction, how Christians should live for all time. If it was said in the Bible, it's like God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Um, and there's truth to that, I think, but there's, there's problems that arise. And one extreme example I can think of is I was talking to a guy online once and we were debating something. I can't remember what, <laughs> but in, in the conversation he, he brought up, or I think I said something along the lines of, okay, in the Bible, we stone people, right? Like we stone sinners, we stone children for disobeying their parents. And the guy responded, and we should. Like, why did we stop doing that? The Bible said it. So, why, I mean, it's in the Bible. Why did we stop doing that? And for me, I was just like, <laughs> I feel like we're completely divorcing the text from the entire narrative in Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, something happens that changes things. Um, so how would you speak into that? How would you speak into people that sometimes look to the Old Testament and just anything in the Old Testament, it's divorced from the context of Jesus? How, how do you help people walk through that? Yeah, good question. I you know what I what I love about talking with you, Aaron, is I don't know what you're going to ask me. <laughs> so I, I get I'm just going off the cuff on the fly. So these answers are going to be imperfect and I don't have all the answers. I'll respond in the moment. First of all, I've I've never met anyone who's said that they feel like they should obey the stoning laws. <laughs> that's that's it was bizarre. That, that I, seems it like it was really a bizarre combo. That seems like um, an extreme to put it lightly. But but the extreme does prove your point. I think it, it makes your point very vividly. You know, let's let's lighten it up a little. And some some people. One woman came up to me at church fairly recently and said, "I, I don't even. I'm not sure that I'm supposed to eat bacon. Um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm not sure that I'm." I, I think maybe I'm supposed to avoid shellfish um, <laughs> because the law is good. And David says, Psalm 119, I love your law. And and Jesus said, not one piece of the law will pass away. He didn't come to destroy it. And the law has, don't get a tattoo, don't eat bacon or shellfish, and make sure you separate cheese from meat. Um, <laughs> and so those, it's actually a good question. I think we all would intuitively know the Bible doesn't want us to stone, like kill people with rocks. But, but, the, but the question, totally. like just saying that, right? Like the Bible doesn't want us to stone people, but then you look 
in the Old Testament. Yes. And Moses, right, the leader of God's people, is leading people to do that. Yes. So I think that's where the disconnect comes. Totally. It, and I, I would also point out, this is this is how, you know, most atheists are very kind and thoughtful. I know I've, I've, I've met many of them. I have, I just recently had one in my home to talk about Jesus and it was, mm. it was a lively conversation, full deconstructed ex-Catholic atheist professor, kinesiology professor at a UC university. He's just great. He's thoughtful. Once in a while, you'll hear online an extreme version of atheism that will say it will agree that he or she will agree with that person who said the Bible teaches us to stone. So the Bible's but they'll say that to show us how the Bible's bad. So it's the same reading from two opposite sides, two opposite extremes. And and really, it boils down to, like, read a book. Like, read. We, we all know how to read a book. You read a poem, not thinking it's historical. You come to it going, oh, this is intentionally a poem. I'll read it as a poem. Or you come to history, and you don't treat it like a poem because it's not intended to be a poem. It's history. We need to come to the Bible as whatever genre it's presenting itself to us as. And and yes, it was historical. God in history, God in history gave gave Israel instructions on how to deal with situational ethics in a time when honestly Canaanite empire city-states were hmm. making up all kinds of violent rules in the name of their gods. And Yahweh stepped into history lovingly. This is always what he's doing. Here's the answer to all the problems. I think this is, it doesn't fix all the problems. It doesn't make us feel good about the problems, but it is a helpful response and framework for how to come to the Old Testament troublesome text. I just had a conversation with a woman about this last Sunday who's having a hard time with violence in the Old Testament that God seems to mm. seems to approve of. Here, here's the framework. God steps into history lovingly with his people, meets them where they're at, and gently moves them forward without destroying them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So with slavery in the Bible, does God come right out and say, I abolish all slavery, all slavery is evil, stop owning slaves? Does he say that? The answer is no. Because that would destroy human civilization that did not know how to function apart from the systems they had inherited. And so God steps into slave cultures and he says, oh my gosh, this is not ideal. I'm going to limit. And and then he gives slave owning laws that limit the evil of slavery and then lovingly move his people beyond those evils toward Jesus who will ultimately abolish slavery. Jesus Jesus ultimately abolished slavery as evidenced by history following Jesus, where mm. Jesus's followers for the last 2000 years have been on the leading aid, leading edge of the abolitionist movement, such as, you know, William Wilberforce and others. In the name of Jesus, slavery has been abolished. Yes. Right. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. there've been there've been some mistakes along the way. Case in point, American Christian justification of owning black bodies. Yeah. But. From within that, we had Jesus followers rising up and saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Look at Jesus. Look at Paul. Yeah. So, so when mm. you read the Old Testament and you see laws about owning slaves or paying, paying a cheaper price for female slaves than male slaves, you're like, wow, this is layers <laughs> right. of problems. Yeah. But God is stepping into a pre-existing culture soaked in evil, and he's limiting that evil with these laws and moving mm. his people beyond the evils toward Jesus. Israel is not there yet in the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. We want God to just hit the reset button 
and bring justice in the Old Testament stories, but that would destroy his people. Mm. So instead of erasing and destroying his people, God's merciful and, and he's relational. And so he gets himself messy. He gets himself messy, mm. just like Jesus on the cross. Mm. Jesus becomes sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might become healed. Saying God's the same in the Old Testament as Jesus in the New. In the Old Testament, God becomes, he gets messy, and he starts Mm. creating laws that seem so convoluted to our modern post-cross eyes. But Mm. pre-Jesus, my goodness, God's like, I'm going to work with these my family that is completely deceived. And I'm going to move them beyond (laughs) the deception. And I'm going to, I'm going to restore their sight. So yeah. That's that, the same thing with, you know, all kinds of laws. That's why, you know, short answer to the guy who wants to quote Moses' laws today, the 613 laws of Moses are done. They're, right. they're done. They don't have the same prescriptive authority over God's people as they did pre-Jesus. They still have yeah. wisdom. They, sh- mm. they show us how God moved people forward. But we don't have to sh- avoid shaving the sides of our beards in the name of Yahweh anymore. <laughs> um yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, even the even um, the Ten Commandments, they have tons of wisdom, and Jesus reaffirmed all of them. Um, and because Jesus reaffirmed them, the Ten Commandments are to be followed, but they're not to be followed because they're simply Moses' law. Moses' law is expired right. like an old driver's license because Christ was crucified, risen, and exalted and gave us the Spirit, which was always meant to be the expiration date of Moses' law. This is how to read the Bible as the Word of God that points to the living Word, Jesus. It's good. the way that I parse it out in my mind is this is kind of the the theological construction that I've thought through in my own mind. But the analogy that I use is, you know, we ask the question, um, okay, so, so are are we pitting Jesus against God? You know, Yahweh of the old Testament versus Jesus of the new. And, and we, we would say, no, God is one. Like Mm -hmm. he has not changed. He is the same. He has always been the same. Yes. But then it's like, okay, so why is he telling people to stone people in the Old Testament? But in the New Testament, Jesus is actually preventing a woman caught in adultery from being stoned. And to me, the the analogy that I have come up with and that I use is it's not that somebody changed. It's not that God changed. It's that have you ever had a plan, a multi-phase plan? And in those phases, you acted differently. But throughout the entire process, you were the same person and you had the same goal and the same objective in mind always it never changed and so you know i think of baking a cake right you have a plan for that you've got a recipe and phase one of the plan is violent you're cracking eggs and beating things in a mixing bowl uh, you know and then phase two you know you're you're putting things in the oven and and things are getting hot but in phase three the cake comes out and you enjoy the cake and if you were to go back and do the violent phase one things in phase three, like imagine trying to eat the cake, but you're cracking eggs and beating, you know, frosting or whatever all over the cake. That's not going to be <laughs> enjoyable for anybody. And but you you never changed. It, it wasn't that you were violent in phase one and then you got to phase three and you're like, oh, I've had, I've had a change of heart. 
It's like, no, you always were planning on the cake being there. And I see the Old Testament as phase one, where it's like God is doing something. But sin is, is wicked. Sin, sin is poison to humanity. It, 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 you know, it's not that God is just so, you know, I just, he, 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 he just hates people for their sin. And he's disgusted by people and he can't stand people. It's like, no, God realizes that sin is poison to humanity, to the spiritual realm. Sin is destructive. And so there is a violent cleansing at times that happens. There is punishment for sin, but it's leading up to this phase three where Jesus is, is born, live, crucified, and resurrected, and then all of a sudden people don't have to be stoned for their sins anymore because Jesus died instead of us. Like he died so that we didn't have to, he was crucified so that we no longer had to be stoned for our sins. He took that punishment. And so to me, that's, that's reading scripture in the context of the meta narrative. It's not just doing what I used to do when I was in middle school and you were my middle school pastor, but it had nothing to do with you. <laughs> like it was just the way that, you know, we grow up in the church. I would flip through the Bible and just go to random verses and go, how does this apply to my life? How does this random verse, you know, what does it teach me about morality and how to live? And when you read it that way, divorced from the context, it's so easy to find something in the old Testament and apply it when God's like, no, I, that's, that's part of the recipe. We're in the phase where you're supposed to be enjoying this cake. If that, if that makes sense, I don't know if it makes sense, but that's, that's no, it does. It It does make sense. And you know, the ground zero new Testament text that supports everything we're saying is Galatians three. If anyone's ever read it, uh, they'll know that Paul, he agreed with you, Aaron, rather we agreed Mm -hmm. with Paul because, because he, (laughs) because he said this very thing that, the law, you know, the 613 laws of Moses, they, they were they were a guardian. They were like a nanny. Mm-hmm. They were a hired caregiver to, to watch God's kids until God's kids matured and were no longer minors and could step into their inheritance. Mm-hmm. And when they turned 18, when Jesus came, it was go time. You know, mm-hmm. the new cup, the spirit of God was now activated in everyone's hearts who trusts in Jesus. That wasn't true under the law. Mm-hmm. So, so so you're right. The cake was baked, um, the, to use your metaphor. The cake was baked, crucifixion, resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus into heaven at the right hand of the Father where he currently sits. And now the Father and the Son breathe the Spirit onto everyone who follows Jesus. And literally, Moses' 613 laws are expired. They're expired in their prescriptive sense. They still carry the authority of the Word of God in a historical and wisdom sense, but we don't have to apply them as literal laws anymore. We don't have to, you know, weigh the scales of slave trade monies anymore <laughs> because right. because that was for a context. It's now expired because it was never the ideal. It was never God's best. It was right. it was good, but it was never God's best. This is Paul Paul says this now, explicitly in Galatians 3. Hmm. Now how, how do you how do you parse that out though? Like how do you determine? I mean, I should just read it. He says, you know, brothers and sisters, you know, let me take an example from everyday life, Galatians 3:15, and he's talking about a human covenant. It can't be set aside, and the covenant is God promising Abraham, I will be your God and you'll be my family and through your family every family will become my family. This was the Mm. intent all along. And it says those promises were spoken to Abraham. They were spoken to Abraham. Abraham's like, I don't get it, but I believe it. 
and mm. it's going to be wild. <laughs> I'm old and I'm going to have a kid. And through my kid, like <laughs> through my kid, the stars of the heavens, that's going to be like all the kids that come from my kid. I'm like 90. That's crazy. But Yahweh, you are to be trusted. Mm. You are to be trusted. Mm. And Yahweh says, that's what I'm talking about. That's my kind of guy. That's righteous. Mm. When God says Abraham's righteous, he's saying, that's my kind of guy. And so Abraham's like, I, I believe that your promise is going to come true. <laughs> and it says those promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say to seeds, meaning many, many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And, and so, so God promised through Abraham that Jesus would come to make all the promises come true. This is, the, this is, mm. this is what the scriptures are about. And Paul is saying, hey, this is what the Bible's about. This is what the Word is about. This is what the Word is about, mm. that God will bring the living Word in Jesus. He will bring Jesus himself. And, and, and then Paul, he sees that we're confused. <laughs> so he says, what I, mean is that, what I mean is this, verse 17, the law, which is Moses' 613 commands, introduced 430 years later, it doesn't set aside the covenant mm. previously established. And it doesn't do away with the promise. Mm. And then he's like, okay, well, why was the law given? Why why did we need 613 commands to confuse a bunch of Americans in 2022 about stoning? <laughs> why did we yeah. why do we need this in our Bibles? He says, because it was added because of sins until the seed. Mm. We have to mm. get that. You know, the woman who came up to me at church and is like, I don't know if I'm supposed to eat shellfish. And the guy who's talking to you, like, I think we should still stone disobedient kids <laughs> or whatever. Like yeah. those laws were added because of temporary sins of an ancient nomadic nation of Israelites. They were always meant to expire when the seed comes, when the Messiah comes and his spirit right fills every heart of messiah followers yeah so moses it's expired good. it's it's expired but can, can i pick at that just a tiny bit just just for the sake of i'm thinking through listeners and the way that mm -hmm. they're probably going to be picking at that yeah let, let's um, but let's pick at it with galatians 3 open question I'd go to is, well, first I'll say in my understanding, um, based on what you're saying and just what, what I know, I think you're right to point out that we have this Old Testament law, this large portion of the law that is specific to the time of Israel and what they're going through. You know, it's phase one of that plan and God is recognizing in order to get Israel through the desert and keep them alive, I need to make a law that they don't eat bats and pigs, you know, <laughs> there, there's all that kind of stuff going on. And, and also just dealing with ethics and dealing with sin that is happening, specific sin that is happening in the land at that time. But then like, so the, the talk about the 10 commandments, mm -hmm. right? That's the big one everyone always goes to. And that's like, keep that sacred, keep it holy, keep it safe. Right. And in that sense, like my question would be, where do we draw the line and, and how do we find out what laws are specific and done away with? And then what laws reflect God's heart forever? If, if you have somebody in your church who comes up to you and is like, hey, Evan, I'm married, but I really want to commit adultery. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been talking to this girl and things are going great. And, you know, the Ten Commandments. Yeah, but that's done away with. That's that's the old law mm -hmm. that's expired. You know, I've, I have freedom in Christ. So. 
How, how do you deal with those kind of situations? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to I want to kind of repeat Paul here again. Why was the law, and he means Moses' 613 laws, including the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the first ten. There's another 603. Mm-hmm. So all of <laughs> Moses' laws were given and they were added. They were added to what? They were added to Abraham's promise. That's the thing that never goes away. When Paul talks about the mm-hmm. law, you can see it in Galatians 4.21 explicitly and also Romans 2. He talks about the law in two ways. Law number one is the 613 laws of Moses that are expired at Pentecost. Law number two, Mm. same word law, and there's debate about this, but I, I think it's very hard to argue the other side based on the text. Law number two is the scriptures, the whole Torah, Genesis, Mm. Genesis through Deuteronomy. Jesus called this the law and the prophets. That was the whole Old Testament. So the law, as Moses' 613 commands, is expired in its prescriptive form for New Covenant children of God. That's Christians, multi-ethnic, global body of Christ. Moses' laws no longer apply to us in the same way. That includes the Ten Commandments. That's all of them. But the law, you can say capital L, the whole Torah, the story of Abraham coming from Eden and moving into Israel, the story of Abraham is authoritative as the word of God through the lens of Jesus for all of God's people for all of time. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he said the law and the prophets will never pass away. Mm. So for the person who says, well, if the law is expired, if Moses's commands are expired, What about the Ten Commandments? Can I murder now? Well, thankfully, (laughs) we have Jesus who who picked up on that law and said, actually, I'm going to make it tighter. If you're angry in your heart, you've sinned, not just killed someone. And then you're like, well, what about adultery? So I can now sleep with who I want? Mm. Well, no, Jesus Jesus got tighter on pornea, which is the biblical word for Mm. sexual immorality. He got tighter and he said, Mm. not only do Mm. you commit pornea with your body, but you commit it with your mind. Mm. And so, and Jesus practiced Sabbath. He said, the Sabbath is made for humans, but not humans Mm. for the Sabbath. Jesus, he, he, in that statement, in that statement, he proved this point. The law is no longer prescriptive, but it's life-giving. You know what I mean? The Mm. Sabbath is not made to be your master. The Sabbath is made to serve you. Hopefully you do it and rest and learn that you're not God and you don't have to work to keep the world running. That's God's job and you can rest. So so even the Ten Commandments Mm. are no longer prescriptive in the same way they were for a nation of ancient nomadic Jews, ex-slaves trying to figure out how to make it across a wilderness and start a country. Those laws don't Mm. apply in the same way, but they do continue to carry God's eternal, authoritative, inspired scriptural wisdom. You're a fool Mm. if you willingly disobey any of the Ten Commandments. And that's obvious Mm. because of the new covenant. Mm. We have the spirit in our hearts who leads us to Jesus, who says, love God and neighbor. If you Mm. flagrantly violate any of the Ten Commandments, you are violating the spirit's law written on your heart that is summed up in love God and love neighbor. Um, mm. The other 603 commands, there's a lot of wisdom there too. There's a lot of, we, we could talk about this another time, and I think we will on a podcast. There's a lot of commands that, that show us that God God wants humans to be a lot less violent than we are and possibly nonviolent in relation to our enemies, in yeah. relation to our neighbors, yeah. and generous and give freely of our own estate mm. to the stranger and the foreigner and the immigrant. Like, my goodness, 
Um, mm. There's a lot of wisdom in the law of Moses, but none of the 613 mm. laws are prescriptive over new covenant family members of God, which is also why capital punishment should never be applied to someone who breaks the laws. Um, mm. Because we're not under the old covenant. They're expired mm. in that sense. So don't. So when I say expired, don't hear me say the, the Bible's no longer authoritative. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the 613. I'm saying what Paul's saying, that the law was right. added as a, as a nanny to take care of the kids until they grew up mm. and could inherit the will. That's, that's literally, <laughs> that's 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 literally what Paul says. This yeah. is, I'm, just, I'm mm. just parroting Paul in Galatians 4, the, right. the first seven verses. Right. The law was a guardian so that the kids could grow up and receive the inheritance of their father's will. Mm. And the father's will has now been liquidated to his kids through the Holy Spirit in the new covenant after Pentecost. That's the church. Mm. We no longer have the nanny. We no longer have a nanny. It's good. Now we're priests right. and king. Now we're, we're a kingdom of priests to one another, just like God always wanted. Yeah, you know, this is really good stuff. And, and to me, what it's doing in my mind is it, it's a, it, it feels like you're calling people, you're calling listeners, you're calling Christians to move from this very surface level of I'm just going to flip to different Bible verses and try to figure out how to apply whatever it's saying to my world, my situation. And instead, you're calling people to read the book within the context of the, the, the book to not open up a letter and just read a random paragraph and say, I'm going to apply 100%. this paragraph perfectly to my life. But instead, you read the letter 100%. and then you, you, sum, you sum up what this letter is and you absorb it and you and, live it out. And the last and, thing, um, sorry, the last thing I want to say on this, and we could, hmm. I, I don't need to say any more. I just think this last thing is important. What I'm saying is not new. Yeah, right. Like this is the, this isn't this isn't uh, progressive Christianity. Oh, this is the opposite. This is the most this <laughs> the opposite. This is the most ancient, <laughs> most historic, most you know <laughs> theologically. Hum, I think theologically humble in the sense that we are just reading what our fathers and mothers of faith have always said. It is very mm. new to like open up a Bible and play Bible roulette and think your own private in interpretation of a text is the one that's correct. You know, um, for 1500 <laughs> years, for 1500 years until Gutenberg invented the printing press, Christians did not have private Bible quiet times. There were no private Bibles. You said that in a sermon once and it blew my mind because we live for this personal relationship with Jesus framework. Don't get me wrong. It's yeah, it's great that we all have our own English Bibles on our shelves. Yes. But yes, but that's very, very new yeah. for 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 three quarters of church history. The way the mm. Bible came to human to people was through group readings in synagogues yes. and in church gatherings where one person had in community, in community where one person had mm. one scroll or or one hand copied book. And and it was kept safe. You know, in Jewish synagogues, you see the big like cabinet where the law is kept and everyone would come and hear it read and you'd read it in literally in community. There was no other way. And and so I, I say that to say the Bible's meant to be read humbly in, in a in mm. a community of, of voices. And what I'm what I'm what I'm suggesting, what I believe, 
is that this this view of you know the old the Old Testament containing 613 laws that were fulfilled in Jesus and are no longer prescriptive, this is not new. This is what the community has always always said and and it's very new to to read the bible very flatly as kind of a divine rule book that fell from the sky and i just read a law about not getting a tattoo in leviticus and therefore you know i'm supposed to not get a tattoo on my arm today in san diego no there there's a there's a like you said there's a story there's a story from which these these laws yeah. come to us and jesus is the point of the story so so yeah, this is not progressive remotely. This is like the oldest. <laughs> yeah, it's way more progressive to 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 say the other the other side. You know. Yeah, to just pick and choose, uh, cherry pick whatever fits whatever you want it to. And be. by progressive, I hate those labels. By progressive, I mean new and right. yeah, not not it, unprecedented. In I, I I think we could say theologically liberal, and by that we don't mean politically liberal. We mean taking the Bible's authority and instead placing our own authority over it. And the Bible is, you know, whatever we want it to be. Sure. All these labels. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's yeah. hard to exist without them, but I do agree though. I, I am, I hate being labeled. I'd rather exist without labels, but anyway, yeah, you know, for, for me, like the, the way that this is playing out in my mind as you're describing it is you, you're calling people to not read the Bible in this flat way but instead you're calling people, you're challenging people where it's like, hey, if you have a question about whether or not something is a sin, don't find some random verse and cherry pick. Look at what scripture says. Scripture interprets scripture. Look at the progression. Look at the story. And so when we look at Jesus and it's like, hey, Jesus is what God has to say. You do not stone your children. And someone's like, well, no, the Bible says it. And it's like, yes. But Jesus comes and he creates this way through the cross where it eliminates that need for the stoning of our children for disobedience because Jesus absorbs the penalty for our sins on the cross. And so for any ethical question, we can't just cherry pick random verses. We have to look at the entire story. We have to look at the entire narrative. And, and if, you know, going to the whole thing on adultery, Yes, we have the verse in the Ten Commandments, but if you look from Genesis to Revelation, you can see a consistent ethic given by Yahweh, Jesus, the apostles, that confirms what the Ten Commandments says about committing adultery. Bathing a goat in its mother's milk, you don't necessarily find that consistent ethic, and so that kind of reveals, yeah, that was a specific law for a specific time. And so it's complicated, but I feel like we need to accept that the Bible's complicated. I feel like we need to accept that we're not called to read the Bible in veggie tales mode or flannel graph Sunday school mode. We're called to dive deep and wrestle through these yeah. things. And, and, and so, it's, and, and yeah. also it's important to say this was the plan all along in, in the old Testament, mm. God said he would no longer require a law written on stone, but on human hearts by the spirit. It's mm. not, it's not like the new mm. Testament came along and Jesus shocked everyone and said, you know what you all heard <laughs> in the Bible? It's all done now. That's not what Jesus did. <laughs> it's not what Jesus did. He, he, he taught the Bible experts how to read the Bible better from their own text. He didn't say mm. the text no longer matters. I, I really want to stress mm. this because I think this even gets missed in conversations like, like this right now. The, the Old Testament mm. always had a plan where the Moses, Moses law would, would no longer be required in the same way. It was always mm. written in there. You can see it in Deuteronomy. The law itself says, I will no longer require the law. So it's not like Jesus pulled something out of his hat in the New Testament. Jesus was not, you know, to use the label, he was not just 
progressive for progressiveness sake. <laughs> he he said, "No, hey, look 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 at the words. The word says that I'm the fulfillment of those words." So, mm. so he's not yeah, it's not not arbitrary. It's not totally alien to the ancient text. It's mm. actually very very local to the text. So Evan, this has been a really, really good conversation, man. I've enjoyed it so much. I feel like you brought a lot of clarity. Going back to the very beginning of this discussion, you know, we're talking about this debate, this conversation in theology where it's this idea of Jesus versus the Bible, you know, and we say, you and I would say, Jesus is what God has to say. He is the revelation of God's heart, his character, his ethics, his plan. All of that is summed up in the Logos. And the Logos means the Word of God, the message of God. And, you know, this is kind of uh, something that I thought of the other day when I was thinking through this issue. You know, when we have this question of, is Jesus the Word of God or is the Bible the Word of God? I think the answer is yes. <laughs> to, yeah, absolutely. To and, and, yeah, and, and, you know, something that popped in my mind on this was just the idea of words and how... Words have meanings, and sometimes the same word can have a different meaning. Like, we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, but I also am a son of God. I'm a, chi I'm a child of God. But does that mean that I am also the Messiah, <laughs> like the one who existed before time? No. And so when we say Jesus is the Word of God, yes. When we say the Bible is the Word of God, yes. But that word has a different meaning applied to each. So, how would you how would you close out this conversation in your in your own words about Jesus as the word of God and the Bible as the word of mm. God? What 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 closing thoughts would you want to leave us with? I mean, it's hard to improve on what you just said right there, Aaron. Uh, <laughs> I, I just want to emphasize that Jesus loved his Bible. He lived by mm. his Bible. Not only mm. is Jesus Yahweh embodied, but mm. but Jesus also upheld and valued and lived by Yahweh's scriptures, not wanting a single word to be removed or taken away. That's the same thing, to be added or removed. And, and, and Jesus gives us a lens for reading the Bible mm. correctly. And then, you know, the, the, the lifelong pursuit of reading the Bible well is, is how, how can we read like Jesus? How can mm. I know Jesus through the Old Testament mm. and New Testament? And, and I'll just go back to the law. <laughs> Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, you know, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he's talking about, you know, a future from from ancient Israel's perspective, it was the distant future. But from our perspective, this is now. And he says, mm. Yahweh your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love mm. him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And, and, mm. and, and Moses wrote that in a time when it wasn't the heart that was circumcised. <laughs> it was something else. It was another body organ that was circumcised. And that, <laughs> and that was a big deal. That was a big deal. Yeah. Like you're only right. in if you follow the law and circumcise your reproductive organ if you're a male, because one because one day yeah. God's going to reproduce the Messiah. But until we mm -hmm. get there, let's keep cutting at our flesh. And mm -hmm. and but but in in that law, way back then, God baked into it this promise: the Lord your God will mm -hmm. one day not circumcise your flesh. It'll circumcise your hearts yes. by the power of the Spirit. This was always mm. the plan. 
The plan was always that Moses would be temporary, that Moses' laws would be temporary, that circumcision would be temporary, that, you know, you be like me in order to belong will be temporary. But God mm-hmm. would create one new family around Jesus, the living word of every nation, tribe, tongue, every cultural background, family history. And we would all say yes mm-hmm. to the lamb that was slain. And in that moment, we say yes to Jesus. The spirit comes in and performs a circumcision of heart. And it's not just for men anymore. <laughs> it's for men and women and children and all who would trust that Jesus actually has what it takes to forgive and heal the world, including us. And, and this, is, mm. this was always the point, always the point. And, and so that, that's why Jesus would say, yes, I love and I submit to the Bible as Jesus. Jesus would say that, but he would also say you can completely read the Bible wrong. You can read the Bible mm. as not the word of God <laughs> if you are reading it <laughs> and not coming to me, Mm. which is a crazy Mm. thing to say, but Jesus says it in John five. Yes. So good. So good, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. I, I love your ability to explain things. I love your passion for this stuff and just for helping people understand who Jesus is. You know, that, that's the, it's the same passion. I remember when you were my youth pastor and I've, I've only seen it grow, man, and it it inspires me. So thanks, man. Thanks for this conversation. I'm amazed. Really I'm amazed it. at the man you become. I know I said it before, but you are um, oh. impacting a lot of lives. Help. You're leading a lot of leaders, actually, and I know you know that. And oh. congrats on the new. Thanks, man. Congrats on the new baby. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. Really appreciate that. All right. Well, Evan will be back on the show sometime soon. Really? To talk about Christian nonviolence. Oh my gosh. So be prepared for that. <laughs> Thanks, Evan. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon. It was a joy. Man, what an incredible episode. I really think Evan brought so much clarity. I was so blessed to see how much respect, reverence, and dedication he has to the authority of Scripture and the way he helped us see the role of Scripture in leading us to Jesus. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love to hear about it. You can send me a direct message on Instagram. My handle is just at Aaron Salvato. You can also find the Instagram account for the show, which is just at Good Lion Ministries. If you'd like to help the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews that we get, the more that people find out about our show and the ministry work that we're doing here. For more content from Good Lion Ministries, you can visit our new ministry website, goodlion.org. There you'll find tons of podcast episodes, organized by themes and topics, as well as videos and theology courses that we've developed. All content is free and available to help you as you follow Christ. Check it out and share it with somebody you think it might bless. The Good Lion Podcast is brought to you by Calvary Global Network, a family of churches working together to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, and plant more churches. The show is produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our goal will always be to be an ally for you on your path of discipleship. We work hard to engage tough questions, avoid easy answers, and help people fix their eyes on Jesus, the God who is not safe, but is very good. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Good Lion Podcast.